As we come to the table this morning, I want to take some time, and I do this every once in a while, just go back to the basics. Message entitled, The Lord's Supper. We're in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the passage here that gives us so clear instruction. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that each one of us might be spirit-filled as listeners that we might understand your word and that you might give us the application in our heart that we might be found obedient. And Lord, if there are any here that do not know you as their own personal Savior, that today they would hear the simplicity of the gospel and you would draw them to yourself. They would come to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul gives this instruction. He's writing to those folks in Corinth And it's amazing, but he starts out and he calls them saints because they had all kinds of problems, didn't they? Chapter 5, they have a guy that is living with his father's wife, immorality, and so he has, you've got to deal with this. Then they have people suing one another. They're in the same business and somebody has ought with somebody else, so they're taking one another to court. And Paul says, don't you have some wise men in the church? that they can make a decision about this? You have to air your dirty laundry before the world? All kinds of problems. And in this chapter here, they're just going through the motions, thinking, well, as long as we do communion. And it begins the chapter by saying, I'm so thankful that you remember the traditions. But later he says, but you come and you celebrate something. It's not the Lord's table. They had women that were taking on the fashions of the day and looking like men and men, I don't know what they were doing, but, but uh, just trying to be like the world and thinking they just come out of the world, live like they want, put Christ on on the weekend, and that's fine. And then they had turned the love feast, which or this, this new covenant uh, communion was a part of, into a mess. Some people were coming and they were getting drunk and gluttonous, but they weren't sharing with the poor people. So they're sitting off by themselves and they're probably getting bitter. So Paul says, we need to go back to the basics. What is this table about? In Exodus chapter 12, verse 26, there's this little line. It says, what mean you by this service? In spiritual religion, everything must be understood. That which is not spiritual, but ritualistic, contents itself with the outward form. We, as believers, must know everything we do. We base it on the word of God. We do not believe in the faith of the man who was asked what he believed. And he said, well, I believe what my church believes. And they said, well, what does your church believe? He said, well, my church believes what I believe. Well, what do you and your church believe? Well, we believe the same thing. Faith knows what she believes and can give a reason for the faith that is in here with meekness and fear. In the Old Testament times, 
God set up markers and ceremonies and feasts so that the children would say, why are we doing this? What's that pile of stones about? What happened over there? What is this big rock here? Well, we call that Ebenezer. When Saul won a great victory, they had a great celebration, and they said, Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord brought us. They put a pile of stones after they crossed the Red Sea. So their children going by said, what's that pile of stones? They could talk about what God did. And at this Passover, this high feast for Israel, remembered the deliverance from Egypt and how they stood waiting to go, eating unleavened bread and the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes that time. The Puritans didn't have Sunday school. Sunday school is more of a modern thing. In fact, Sunday school was begun by church people to teach poor children who didn't have the opportunity to go to school, and they used the word of God to do that. And what's happened over the years then is we've just kind of delegated that to other people. But in Puritan times, the whole family would come to church, and in the afternoon, the father and the mother would ask the children, what did you learn today? And they would go through, and they would catechize their children, bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord so they don't get to the place like the Corinthians where they've just forgotten the meaning because they've forgotten the meaning. They're not living like Christians. They're just going through the motions. And Paul said, it's a serious thing. He said, many are weak and sickly among you, and some have died because they don't honor the life of the Lord. And the Bible says that God scourges every son he receives. There is no son that is without discipline. And so he said, that's what the discipline is about. So he comes back and he begins. And he says, first of all, by Jesus' instruction, this table is a memorial. It's a remembrance. If you want to remember something in history, we put up plaques or pillars or we write in books. We put statues up. But people forgot what they're all about. And now people pull down statues. And, and even brass and stone wears away over time. We forget what it is. You can write a book and it could be left on a shelf. But what God did in the Old Testament was he, he gave his children feasts and rituals and ceremonies. We do the same thing in our culture, don't we? Every 4th of July, what do we do? We shoot off fireworks and we eat hot dogs. You know, in Laramie, we go down to Freedom Has a Birthday. We walk around, eat food, and greet one another, and we celebrate on Memorial Day. Many people go, and they visit the graves of those that have died. But especially, it's a time of remembering those that died in sacrifice of our nation, that we might enjoy this freedom. It's a time of remembrance. And so Jesus establishes this ceremony, this communion, as a reminder, now some churches, and I've been the abuse of this, you know, that somebody has said to me, oh, you Baptists, you just, you remember, that's nothing. We have a really spiritual thing we do. It's like, well, if you go back to the text, this is what the Bible says. And memory is not a weak thing. If we go back and remember all that we are is because of Jesus Christ. First of all, we remember an absent friend. My grandpa Berglund died when I was six. I love my grandpa Berglund. And I have from him his notes and many of his books where he signed his name. He had beautiful penmanship, Albany Berglund. He only signed E because his middle name was Emmanuel, and he thought, that's not right. 
that should be somebody else's name. We named Andrew after him, Andrew E. Berglund. There's no manual there because grandpa didn't like that. And there's memories of my grandpa. My grandpa Martin gave me Alfred Eidersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a great, great volume, two-volume set. And I love it because it's such good information, but it's special because my grandpa gave it to me. There's pictures we have of loved ones. And so we remember, at funerals I often tell people, listen, you think there's grief now because this loved one has passed. And so in order to protect somebody from grief, you won't mention that person anymore. That's the opposite of what folks want to happen that have a loved one that's gone to be with the Lord. They want to remember. Yes, it's sad they're not here, but they want to remember. They want to remember those good times, the wonderful memories they had. And so we come to this table, remember that our friend is not here. Holy Spirit is here, but he's gone into the heavenlies. And the precious verse in 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Though you have never seen him, you love him. And sometimes we forget, but oh, it doesn't our heart yearn to one day see Jesus face to face. And we have these little pictures that look, you know, Solomon, uh, this guy named Solomon, it wasn't the Solomon, but this guy named Solomon did Solomon's head of Christ. And so a lot of us, we'd like to think, well, that's Jesus. No, that's idolatry. We don't have a picture of Jesus. But nothing, no picture that you could make up will ever compare to when you see him face to face because he's coming in glory. And so we come to this table, remember, that Jesus said to his disciples, I call you no longer servants, but I call you my friends. Who's a friend like Jesus? And he's gone right now, but he's coming back. Second, we remember his great deed of love, what he did for us at Gethsemane, at Gabbatha, when he was misjudged, when he was condemned, when he was beaten, and at Golgotha, where he took upon himself the wrath that was due us because of our sin. He suffered in our place, our friend. We remember a dear friend who has gone about our business. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth's not in you because one of the first marks of believers is a new conviction of sin things you used to just cover up and not think about, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit renews your conscience and you can't even have a bad attitude without the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you're judging again, right? That's new life. But he says, he goes on to say, but if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he begins the next chapter, he says, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But understand this, If you do sin, you have an advocate, you have an attorney, one that stands for you and pleads your forgiveness, your justification, because he paid the price. He's gone about our business. He leads us, he guides us, he sends the Holy Spirit to lead us and protect us, give us understanding. No one has a friend like Jesus. But we also remember that he is returning as a king. We sing that wonderful, that wonderful song that has that phrase in it that I just, I just glory in. I'm loved by the king. I'm loved by the king. And the king's coming back.
The first time he came meek and sitting on the foal of a donkey. The next time he's coming back with fire in his eyes. The Bible says in Revelation 19, 11 through 13, John said, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written on him which no man knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And one day that trumpet's gonna sound and he's gonna come charging out of heaven and the wicked are gonna melt before his gaze and he's gonna come in victory. He's a coming king. The second meaning of the Lord's table is that it is an exhibition. Jesus said, every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you show the Lord's death. It's a testimony to people that this is where you get your life. This is what your life is all about. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You didn't earn it, you were given it. And that all that you are and all that you have is because of Jesus. The bread, the body that was given, his body was broken, marred, sadly marred, given over to the hands of death, laid in a sepulcher, wrapped about with fine linen, left there as his enemies thought never to rise again. And that bread, that broken bread, even believing children may eat their morsel. You see, Christ's body was given up for his people's sake. In... John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000 and he went away to another part in the Sea of Galilee, they followed him there and he said, it's so sad you didn't even come because of a miracle where he turned five loaves and fishes into enough to feed over 12,000 people. Fed the 5,000 men and they counted up afterwards all the people there and they brought 12 baskets back. And they missed the miracle. They just wanted a free lunch. And they said, well, in the Old Testament, we are, God gave our, our fathers the bread of heaven. He said, no, I'm the bread of heaven. They said, well, give us that. He began to teach them the doctrine of his substitutionary atonement. Some people misunderstand what he was saying there and think they get salvation by taking communion. That's not what he was teaching. Do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? Charles Spurgeon says, yes, yes, really we do. But carnally, no, we don't. That would make us cannibals. But when he said, they ate the man in the wilderness, good food, natural food, God gave the tomb, but they still died. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. And the people just melted away. They couldn't handle it. And he turns to his disciples and they said, he said, are you going to go away too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And then he explained to them, the words that I speak to you, they're spiritual when we partake of physical food, it gives us energy, the energy that animal or that plant got from the ground, and then it was harvested, and so you eat it, and you get physical life. Jesus said, when you partake of my life, you get eternal life. How do you partake of it? By receiving his substitutionary death on the cross and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. And so we celebrate the broken bread, and the wine. In order to have the fruit of the vine, we have to crush it. The Bible says in Isaiah 50, 53, 
that it pleased the Father to crush the Son by those he would bring to himself through his sacrifice. What an amazing thought. An amazing thought. When we think of the picture of the bread, how did the bread suffer? Well, the seed went in the cold earth and suffered cold and then heat and then the sharp knife that cut it off and then the beating of the thresher to separate it from the chaff, then the grinding of the stone to make it into flour, then the heat of the oven to make it into bread and then the bread is broken. But what, is, what does it give us? It gives us life. And Jesus took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body which is given for your life. Then there stands the cup. It's full of the red juice of the grape. And Jesus explains that this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Now the shedding of blood is, is a token of death and one would not long talking of killing without speaking of bloodshedding. In fact, bloodshed normally means a violent death and Jesus died a violent death. The broken bread, the cluster pressed into the cup, leave nothing but its blood-red juice. These two symbolize Christ's death. But most of all, this is an exhibition of the two things separate because when you separate blood from the flesh, that's death. There are those churches that don't allow the people in their church to partake of both. And so they watch the priest take the wine or they might dip the bread and take both of them together but the picture here is separate because his life was separated from his body. He shed his blood. And so we take the bread and then we take the wine. There must be both. It's not enough to watch somebody else do it. It's not just a beautiful symbol to watch. But God wants his people participating to help remember, to be involved. At this table, we say to all that do not know Christ, Christ's death is our life. That's what we preach. Paul said, I don't glory in anything, but I glory in the cross. And people say, why do you glory in the cross? Because that's where he won our salvation. John MacArthur says that on that good Friday, hell came to Golgotha at noon. And from noon to three o'clock, God turned his back on his son and poured his wrath. It wasn't Satan getting to Jesus. God poured his wrath out, his holy, righteous wrath on his only begotten, innocent son because of my sin, because of your sin. And here's the amazing part. John MacArthur says, then he called for something to drink because he wanted to clear his throat after that amazing victory that he just won. And they gave him vinegar and he cleared his throat and in full strength, he pulls himself up on those nails and cries out to Telestai, it is finished. Jesus won the victory at the cross. They did not kill him. He said in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I'll lay it down of my own accord and then I'll take it up again. And the Bible says then he pillowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. And they set a guard because they said, oh, he said it'll rise again. And three days later, he exploded out of that tomb. We remember that. Christ has died. Christ's death is a support of our faith. And it is food for our souls. Because it's not about our works. It's just about what Jesus Christ has done for us. The third meaning 
that is a communion. First of all, it is fellowship with God. We are at the Lord's table. It's called that, the Lord's table. It's said in old culture that if you ate the salt of an Arab, you were under his protection. And when you eat the elements that are here and you belong to Jesus Christ, you are under the Lord's protection. Jesus said, my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Can I really feed on Christ? Really, yes. And we said before, carnally, no. Now, beloved, if we really come in the right spirit to this table, when we have eaten the bread, it becomes part of us. When you drink the fruit of the vine, when you drink the wine or the grape juice, that also becomes part of you, doesn't it? It just becomes, assimilates into your body. It creates cells and it becomes part of you, just like Jesus Christ is always a part of you. And Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We are his, and he is ours. But there's also the communion with the saints. We are one with one another. Many gifts, one body. I don't mean just this local church, but every born-again believer in every denomination, in every country, in every language around the world. We belong to one another. It was a joy over 20 years ago. And now Lynn and I, Pastor Howe and I went to Thailand. And we were there just to minister to pastors like some others have done, going over places. And we did not speak any Thai. We also ministered to some folks from Myanmar. We didn't speak any of their language and all the dialects of the tribal people we ministered to. But, oh, we had fellowship. And even we were up in those grass huts in the middle of the jungle in northern Thailand. We had wonderful fellowship because those pastors had the same desire for their families as we have, that their children would grow up and honor the Lord. They had the same desires for their community, that they would be a light and see their community come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Oh, what kinship we had. And we find that it's such a blessing, and I don't know why it surprises us so much. When I go to Germany and I'm there in IBC Cologne, I feel like I'm just right here with you. Because those folks know the Lord. And we have communion with one another. One is our master, even Christ, and we are all brethren. I wish that some, I know that every time, especially in our culture, we are getting to be more and more maverick in our culture. We don't need the church. I don't need other believers. That's where the problems are. Yep. And we say often. If you find a perfect church, don't join it. You will wreck it. It's, it's made up of, of people that are not perfect, but that are being perfected, right? He's still working on us. And part of the great challenge, you know this in marriage too, God uses marriage in Christians' lives. I remember Billy telling me this, man, this is a great tool for God to use to make me more like him. I said, amen and amen. Same thing is in the church. We have to make a decision to love one another, but we do that based upon what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, what? Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And that's how we grow. That's how we grow in love. We have this responsibility to love one another. And John wrote in 1 John 3, 16, brethren, don't just love in word, you know, you have a really good doctrinal statement about how we're all one with all the saints, really good doctrinal statement about how you have 
opportunity to love the saints, but he said, let us love in deed and in truth. Do you see your brother have a need? And you have food or shelter or clothing you could help him with, but you say instead, be thou warmed and filled, brother. John says, how does the love of God abide in you? And you know, God gave us that information. He wrote that down because we need that instruction, don't we? Because we get caught up in our own things and we forget the great blessing, the great security, the great encouragement, the great protection of the saints. That's why almost after every service, I say, listen, greet one another. The most powerful ministry that happens at this church doesn't come from this pulpit. It comes from you and from us as one another, as we minister, as we bear one another's burdens, as we pray for one another, as we provide for one another, as we protect one another, as we minister to one another. It's in the fellowship of the saints. There should be an intimate feeling of fellowship, a readiness to help, and a love for one another. Rejoicing with them that rejoice and weeping with them that weep. There's a fourth meaning of the Lord's Supper, and that it is a covenanting. Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. The Bible said there's, there's almost no covenants without shedding of blood. He said that in Hebrews. When God made a cover with Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham and then God slew some animals and he woke him up and there's a great darkness there. And what they would do when you made a covenant with somebody, whether it's a business deal or, or over some, some covenant you were making in another country, they would sacrifice animals and they would lay them apart. And the parties of the covenant would walk between the animals and, and in effect saying, the same thing happened to me if I don't keep my word. Abraham didn't walk through that. God did. As a burning lantern, he came through and promised that he would keep his word. Who is Abraham? He's the father of our faith. The father of faith. And God promised he would keep his promise to Israel and he would keep his promise to those that trust in his Savior that came through Israel, Jesus Christ. And every time we come and we come to this new covenant celebration, we say, God is our God and we are his people. We don't belong to the devil. We don't belong to the world. And brothers, we don't belong to ourselves. By this communion, we say we belong to Jesus. So we tell the world we're everything we are because of his death and we don't belong to ourselves, so you understand what we're doing? That's okay, as long as he does. He's our God. Here at the communion table, God, the covenant God, seals his love to us. He says, I love you, I gave myself for you. In to token there, I've put this bread into your mouth to remind you of how I gave myself for you. I love you so that you are mine. I have called you by my name. In token thereof, I remind thee that I, brought you, I bought you with my precious blood. Therefore, take that sip of the juice of the vine and let it go into your body to remind you that by my precious blood, it was shed for many, and I have redeemed thee from going down to the pit. And you are here to come every time we have communion to renew your love to renew that covenant, to remind us because we need reminding and say to the Lord, you are mine and I belong to you. Last, this supper signifies a thanksgiving.
Jesus, when he broke the bread, he gave thanks. Later in the later part of the Passover feast, he took the cup of blessing, and what did he do? He gave thanks. And so this is a thanksgiving time. It's a time of self-examination. We each one examine ourselves, but it's also a time of giving thanks. Corporately together, we sing hymns, and individually as we take the bread, we take the wine, we thank the Lord for his life and the life that he's given us. As Charles Spurgeon said, it's often called by my friends who love hard words, the Eucharist. He said, I have some friends who always carry a gold pencil on purpose to put down every word that nobody understands, that they may use it next Sunday in their sermon. Such people call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. What does that mean? It means giving of thanks. Isn't that wonderful? That this is a giving of thanks. But we are come to a festival, not a funeral. Now think about this. We celebrate Memorial Day, and there's all kinds of uh, ceremonies that go on at the graveyards. And and when I was a soldier in the honor guard, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning on Friday. We would go with loads of these little flags, and we'd kick the stone and put a flag at our heel. And by the time the sun came up, all of Arlington Cemetery was decorated because we honored those that gave their life and service for our country. On the 4th of July, we we have fireworks and we, we eat big meals and we celebrate. But those that died and gave their lives would not want us grieving about the price they paid. They would want us celebrating. Even though freedom is not free, it costs a price. We celebrate and we live on in that freedom and that liberty because it was paid. And we celebrate their lives. We just don't grieve. We remember the seriousness. So when we come to the table... We remember this is serious. And he said, you better take it serious. In the church at Corinth, many were sick and many were weak and some had died because they didn't honor the Lord. They thought they could just go through the motions and they disregarded the body and the blood of the Lord. And so God disciplined them. But it's not a time of grieving. It's a time of celebrating. The Lord's Supper takes his place with higher joys. We come to this feast to testify our joy in Christ and that's why in our fellowship, we sing those songs. And we rejoice, and sometimes there's tears, but they're tears of joy because Jesus loved me. We sang that song, He's Never Left Us Alone. Standing on this mountaintop, kneeling on this battlefield, He never left us alone, and we rejoice in that. That the God of everything, who created the stars, all the universe, cares to hear from you. That cares that you come, and have worship time with the saints. I think we should always come to the Lord's table with a feeling of deep reverence, but that reverence should never tend to bondage. We come to the table actually to praise the Lord. Now think about his example. Jesus told his disciples, knowing all the things that were going to happen, he said, oh, I've so looked forward to spending this time with you. So even while Judas went away to betray him, He was loving his disciples and sharing with them. And then he got up from the table. He said, it's time to go. And they went out singing a hymn. Where was he going? He was going to Gethsemane. To great agony where the burden and the the great sin of the world was going to begin to be laid on him. And his sweat as it were, great drops of blood as he pled with the father. Father, 
If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the Bible says in Luke that angels came and ministered to him. And then he got up and he said, it's time to go. And they came out with all their torches and the, up the 600 soldiers to arrest him. And he's taken to the unjust all-night trial with the priests. And then he stands before Pilate in Gabbatha on the pavement there. And in order that Pilate might get some kind of sympathy out of the crowd that is crying for his crucifixion, he has him scourged. So standing there, having been beaten by the soldiers and a crown of thorns pressed into his brow and beat by the scourge, Bible says his vision was marred more than any man, and yet no sympathy. They said, crucify him, crucify him. And then he goes to Calvary to be nailed to a cross, to suffer the wrath of God because of our sin. And yet he went from the table singing. How could he do that? The Bible gives explanation. It says, who for the joy that was set before him? Who's the joy? Here's the mind-blowing, amazing grace part. It's you and me. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, knowing what was coming, he went from the table singing. He went there to die. He went there singing. I want you to go away from this table singing. Whatever comes high or low, bright or dark, heaven or another age in this dark wilderness, brethren, let us sing. Let us often say, let us pray, but let us sing to the Lord because of his great gift to us, which we remember and set forth and commune and covenant with. Let us sing to the Lord as long as we live. For we can never sufficiently praise him for all that he has done for us. Father, we thank you for this instruction for this reminder of this important time around the table. Lord, convict us of sin left unconfessed. Remind us of our covenant with you, of what was endured, and yet, Lord, that you're coming back. Lord, energize us that we might worship and we might go from this place with our head lifted to endure with the people of God, whatever you give them to endure, but to stand because you are the strength of our life. And Lord Jesus, everything we have, everything we are is because of you. And today we remember you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.